Well, good morning, everybody. I know that we've still got some folks coming in, and it's uh, we're starting a little bit early, but we've got a few announcements, so we're going to get started just to run through a few things and point your attention to a few things in the bulletin before our worship service this morning. Uh, as you can see, the, the bulletin is, is filled with a few different things. Uh, coming up this week, we have choir practice at 7 on Wednesday. Uh, so if you are in the choir or even if you're interested in joining the choir, uh, Lynn would love to have some, some new people if, if you're interested. Uh, come 7 o'clock here in the sanctuary back here in the choir room uh, at 7 o'clock. Also for uh, there in the announcements are two things coming up that we've got starting uh, within two weeks. We've got uh, a new Sunday school class or really just a, a new Sunday school class curriculum that we're going to be working our way through for the next three months of, of March, April and May. Now, I'm going to be leading us for about 12 weeks going through some uh, basic doctrines of theology. Uh, so we'll spend the month of March looking over uh, introductory to theology, things like why we study the Bible and what the Bible is, what revelation is, uh, how we know what we know about God and things like that for that first month. The month of April, we will look at the doctrine of God. Um, what he is like, what his attributes are, what, who he is and what he does. And the doctrine are the month of May will be the doctrine of man, who we are, what sin is, things like that. Occasionally, I think I, I've, I've got a, a Sunday or two where we'll talk about dinosaurs and angels and demons. Occasionally, and we'll, we'll find some some fun topics to get lost in, I'm sure. Uh, but we will meet for that. For those Sundays, we will meet here in the sanctuary for Sunday school starting at 930. So we would love to have. Have you, if you're a part of Sunday school, come join us. If you haven't been a part of Sunday school in a while or never, come join us at 930 on Sunday mornings. Uh, we'll start that theology uh, Sunday school class on March 6th, so two Sundays from now. Also coming up is a Wednesday night study. Uh, typically in the spring, we've done uh, growth groups at the Parsonage on Tuesdays or Thursdays. This, this year, we will not be doing spring growth groups, but instead we'll be doing a Wednesday night study here in the sanctuary from 6 to 7 uh, we'll be going through a book called Rediscover Church. Uh, it's about who we are as a church and what the church is supposed to be and, and what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, and so we'll be going through this book together for uh, on Wednesday nights from 6 to 7, which, as you can see, there starts March 9th. I've got one copy of that book that's in the narthex. If you're curious about the study or interested in what the book is about, feel free to thumb through that book uh, as you as you're exiting or any time this morning. And if you're if you would like to join us, please put your name and information on the sign up sheet there in the narthex so that we can make sure we have enough books for everybody. But if you have any questions about either the Sunday school class or our Wednesday night study, let me know. We'd love to talk to you about it. My last announcement that I have is for, from Pat uh, regarding tax season. If you need a copy of your uh, contributions for the last year for tax purposes, you need to ask Pat for that. She's not going to make it unless you ask specifically for it. Uh, we got ours. I got mine this morning. I asked for it this week and got it this morning. So she's quick, quick on the spot. So if you need it, just let her know. Any other announcements this morning? Am I missing anything? All right. I think I got it all. Good. <clears throat> well, typically, uh, as we begin worship every Sunday, I like to read to you from the Psalms. Uh, this morning, I, I want to read to you something different. I have a, a book. That was given to me several years ago called The Valley of Vision. Uh, it is a, a book, a collection of Puritan prayers on different things. Uh, I don't read it every day, but but when I do, it is a, a tremendous blessing to me, helping me find words uh, to pray, especially on days where I lack the words to pray. 
And so this morning, I want to read to you one of these pray, prayers and, and pray it over you as we, as we begin our, our worship service this morning. Pray with me. Oh God, I bless thee for the happy moment when I first saw thy law fulfilled in Christ. Wrath appeased, death destroyed, sin forgiven, my soul saved. Ever since... Thou hast been faithful to me. Daily I have proved the power of Jesus' blood. Daily have I known the strength of the Spirit, my teacher, director, sanctifier. I want no other rock to build upon than that I have. Desire no other hope than that of gospel truth. Need no other look than that which gazes on the cross. Forgive me if I have tried to add anything to the one foundation. If I have unconsciously relied upon my knowledge, experience, deeds, and not seen them as filthy rags. If I have attempted to complete what is perfect in Christ. May my cry be always only Jesus, only Jesus. In him is freedom from condemnation, fullness in his righteousness, eternal vitality in his given life, indissoluble union and fellowship with him. In him, I have all that I can hold. Enlarge me to take in more. If I backslide, let me, like Peter, weep bitterly and return to him. If I am tempted and have no wit, give me strength enough to trust in him. If I am weak, may I faint upon his bosom of eternal love. If in extremity, let me feel that he can deliver me. If driven to the verge of hope and to the pit of despair, Grant me grace to fall into his arms. O God, hear me. Do for me more than I ask, think, or dream. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Our first hymn is hymn 509, Onward Christian Soldiers. Please stand and sing.
remain standing, uh, we're going to say our Apostles' Creed and do our doxology before our children's story. Uh, we have our, the Apostles' Creed, it is in the front of the hymnal if you need it to follow along and see it. Uh, but here, as we say it every week, it is a vocal proclamation of what we believe as the church, as God's people. And so I invite you to say the Apostles' Creed with me this morning if you believe it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. If at this time our, our children want to come forward for our children's story. Who remembers what book of the Bible Patrick or Pastor Patrick is preaching through? Do you remember the name of it? Deuteronomy. Good job. And he's preaching through chapter 20 today. So I have a question to ask you. Is there anything that scares you sometimes? Can you tell me what might scare you? Oh, sometimes the shadows can make you think there's something sneaky up there. Yeah. Yeah. So being way up high might scare you. Yeah. Claire, do you have anything you want to share? What about thunderstorms sometimes when they get really loud? What about what about what was the animal that you talked about in Sunday school today? Snakes. Snakes. Snakes are not fun. Yep. And then what did the Israelites have to do to be saved from the snakes? They had to have faith in God. 
to save them from the from the snake bites by looking at the snake on a pole. Remember, they had to have faith. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter twenty, it says this. Let's see. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses, chariots, and an army larger than yours, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, is with you. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. So when we know that God is the one who fights our battles and gives us victory, regardless of what our enemies are, when we're afraid of something like... Two snakes, yeah. So let me ask you this question. Who's bigger? Is God bigger or is a snake bigger? God's bigger? Okay. Who's bigger, a monster or God? God. Who's bigger, a big thunderstorm or God? God, right? So we can have faith. In God, knowing that he is bigger and better and stronger than anything we can be afraid of, right? And that is what God wanted the Israelites to know and to have faith in him, right? To know that God is going to fight their battles if, if they will have faith in him. And we know that in the Bible, in, in Romans chapter 8... It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? That means no one can, can be against us if God loves us and is for us. Who? The devil? Yes, but who's bigger? Is the devil bigger or is God bigger? God is bigger. And he tells us in the Bible, in the Bible that the devil is already defeated. Right? And we're just waiting on, waiting on God and Christ to come back and finish it all for us. All right, let's pray. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you that we can gather with your people to worship you and learn about you. And thank you that you are bigger and better and greater than all of our enemies and all of our fears and everything that scares us. Please give us faith to trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If anybody needs to get their exercise in, we've got a a toddler who would love to be chased around. Let's, let's sing again together. Our next hymn is hymn 411, How Firm a Foundation. Please stand and sing.
Thank you. Please be seated. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. We are looking this morning at Deuteronomy chapter 20. Uh, if you do not have a, a Bible, there should be a blue Bible there on the end of one of your pews. Feel free to grab one of those so you can follow along with us. Uh, it is a, a, a longer a longer section of Scripture than we've been studying the last several weeks. Uh, but chapter 20 is, is one cohesive unit, so we're going to be looking at the whole chapter this morning together. Uh, so we will be in chapter 20 this morning. Next week, we will cover the first part of chapter 21. Uh, and, then, and, and then for the Sundays leading up to and including Easter, we will be taking a break from Deuteronomy and we'll head back to the Gospel of John for eight Sundays. Uh, if you were with us for our Advent series, we went through the first chapter of John looking at the, the birth of Christ, the word made flesh. And so for eight Sundays, including leading up to Easter, we will be looking at eight different encounters that individuals and people had with Jesus uh, in his ministry, looking through the, the Gospel of John, studying that. So. Hope you'll join us for those Sundays. If you have people that you've been meaning to invite to church but haven't, these eight Sundays will be a great opportunity for that as we will be focusing on the gospel, focusing on Jesus, uh, looking at, at his conversations and, and the, the gospel that he proclaims. So it's, I'm excited about this, this series with you. But for this morning, we are looking at Deuteronomy chapter 20. This is what it says. <clears throat> When you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house lest he die in the battle, and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil You shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, 
which are not the cities of the nations here, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. You shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that you should that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food. You may destroy and cut down that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. <clears throat> the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come seeking your help. Now, we pray that the spirit who inspired these words would illumine our hearts to understand these words. Write your word on our hearts this morning. Teach us what it means to trust in you. Teach us what it means that you give us the victory because you, Lord, fight for us. Help me to make much of Christ this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I'll be honest with you as we begin this morning. I'm very thankful to Michael for, for preaching last Sunday. Uh, he, had, he had prepared and, and delivered a, an excellent word from Psalm 96. Thankful to him. Uh, but I'm also thankful that it fell when it did, uh, that, that God was able in his divine providence to give me two weeks for this passage, because I assure you I needed it. Uh, this, is one of those, this is one of those weeks that, one of those passages that, as thankful as I am that we practice expository preaching and we move chapter by chapter through books of the Bible, it would be very obvious if I skipped over chapter 20, just even if I, I, I really want to at times. Because you, as, as you can tell, as reading through this, this chapter, it's a hard one. It's hard not only to read and understand what it meant for Israel at the time, but it's even harder when we consider for us. What does Deuteronomy 20 have to do with the church? What does Deuteronomy 20 have to do with us today? I mean, maybe we can apply it to, to those of us that are, are believers and and are serving or have served in the military. Maybe maybe our military needs to hear these words. But I think that would limit the audience and the intention of God's word to only a select group of people. And surely we know that it is not just for them. It must also be for us. But I think what one thing that, that stands out, that has stood out from all of our study of Deuteronomy and has continued to stand out from, from Scripture, is that God's people have always been called to be different. Right? We know that Israel was God's chosen nation, that they were to be separated and set apart from the nations around them, not to worship God like the other nations worship their gods, not to live like the other nations live. But Israel was called to be distinct. They were called to be set apart. They were called to be holy. 
And so too are we. We are called to be distinct. We are called to be set apart. We are called to be holy. And as we consider the the history of Israel, as we consider this specific moment in Israel's history, for them, war was a fact of life. The Bible even speaks during the, the time of King David that there was a time of year when the kings just went out for war. Spring came, winter ended, and it was time for the kings to go to battle, because that's what they did. War was just something that happened. It was a part of everyday life. And because it was a part of everyday life, Israel, too, was called to be different, was called to be set apart, was called to be holy, even in how they conducted themselves on the battlefield. They were called to be holy in their warring. And so as we come to this passage, what I, what I want to do is, is really the, the first four verses of this chapter are the driving force of the entire section. If we miss the first four verses, then nothing that follows will even make sense, much less be applicable. But as we'll see in the first four verses, we will see and come to understand that it is God who fights for us. And if God fights for us, then victory is certain. And if victory is certain because God is fighting for us, then how we conduct ourselves matters. And we can do so with grace and with patience, with confidence, with peace. Because we know and we believe that the Lord fights for us. And if the Lord fights for us, then victory is assured. So this morning, I really want to spend the majority of our time on these first four verses. But then after that, after we get this understanding that it is the Lord who fights the battle, then we can see how we are to live in grace towards others and towards creation and towards ourselves. So first, let me show you in these first four verses how the Lord fights and wins the battle. We know from Israel's history that Israel had lots of enemies. And specifically here in Deuteronomy, they are standing on the edge of the promised land. They are going into a land of flowing with milk and honey, a paradise, if you will. And they are coming from 40 years of wandering around the wilderness, a very trying time. If you've been with us in Sunday school over the last several weeks, you've seen the trying times of Israel in the wilderness. It was hard. And now they are on the edge of the promised land, the land they've been waiting for for a very long, long time. There's people there and they're going to go in and they're going to make war against these cities. God is going to give them the battle. They're going to attack. But here in Deuteronomy 20, the focus, the primary focus is for what happens after Israel takes the promised land. What happens after they are given this land and the people that they will come into contact with, the people they will fight, people like the Philistines. Like the of which Goliath was well known at Philistine. People like the Moabites, people like the Assyrians, people like the Babylonians and the Romans later. The Deuteronomy 20 is primarily about what Israel is to do when they fight nations and armies that are not the Canaanites. And we see very quickly that these armies and these enemies are described as being more powerful than Israel. They're described as having horses and chariots. At the time, these are, these are the most technologically advanced military troops. That horses and chariots could, could easily wipe out entire battalions of infantry. 
And Israel didn't have horses and chariots. They had farmers that turned their plows into swords. They had no standing army. They were not a military people. They were a group of former slaves. And now they were trying to conquer fortified cities. They were trying to push back armies that had men who had, had spent their entire lives from childhood being trained to be soldiers. Trying to, to fight an army of horses and chariots as a group of former slaves turned farmers would be would be like one of us taking a plow and trying to take on a group of marines. Not going to happen. They were severely outmatched. What, what hope in this battlefield could Israel have against an enemy like this? Very quickly we see in verse 2, at the end of verse 1 and verse 2, they had the only hope that mattered. They, Israel, was called to have faith that the Lord would fight for them. That he would go before them. And verse 1 assures them of both the Lord's presence and his, and his actions in the past. Moses says, he is with you today. He is the same God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And every time this, this phrase comes up, that the Lord is the same God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, it is Moses reminding them, do you remember Egypt? Do you remember that world superpower that pursued you with their horses and chariots all the way to the edge of the Red Sea? Do you remember how the Lord parted the waters and you walked across? And as the chariots and horses pursued you into the waters, the Lord swallowed them up and defeated the world's greatest army of the day. The same God that did this will also go before you and fight for you then. I love the, the words that Moses gave to Israel when they were standing on the banks of that Red Sea. Israel saw the soldiers, uh, as the cloud of dust that these horses and chariots were kicking up as they were chasing them. They saw the waters of the Red Sea with no escape in front of them. And they began to panic. Terrified, they came to Moses and said, help us, help us, help us. Go, go plead to the Egyptians. Tell them not to kill us. We'll come back. And Moses calmly and powerfully stands before Israel and he says there in Exodus 14, he says, the Egyptians you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And here again, Moses is encouraging Israel that on the days that you enter battles against armies that seem much more advanced and much more terrifying, trust and believe in the Lord, for he will fight for you then as he did at the Red Sea. I think it's important to note in verse 2, you'll notice that it is the priest, not the commander-in-chief, not the political leader, not the king, not the military general. It is the priest who is called to come and stand before the army of Israel and to address the people prior to the battle. Here, the priest's role was to remind the men that as they prepared for war, not to fear, not to live afraid, but to have faith because the Lord would go with them into the battlefield and it was the Lord who would give them the victory. In Hebrew, that, that verse ends, verse, uh, verse 3 ends with very literally, sorry, verse 4, to give you the victory is what it's translated in the ESV. In Hebrew, that is literally to save you. It is the Lord who will go before you to save you. And so we see very simply and clearly what this meant for Israel. 
And really for us, as we, as we consider how this applies, why this matters to, to us, I think before we can jump into the, the application, we, we have to keep a few truths in mind, especially with difficult passages like this. First, the, the, to really understand this, we need to keep in mind that the age of Israel is different than the age of the church. You see, in Israel, the, the people of God were confined to a nation. They were confined to an ethnicity. They were confined to a race. But today, that is no longer the case. God's people are not confined to any one nation. God's people are not confined to any one race or ethnicity or any one specific part of the world. God's people are the church. And we are spread across the world from one corner to the other. And so the church is not called to occupy any sort of promised land. We are certainly not called to use military force to conquer enemies. Israel was called to engage in holy war. The church has never been called to engage in holy war. Ever. Study the Crusades and tell me that that was righteous and justified. It wasn't. Israel, as they conquered the land of Canaan... We see in verses 16 through 18 here in Deuteronomy 20 that Israel was called, when you go into the land of Canaan, you are to wipe them out, to save alive nothing that breathes. Because in those moments, Israel was serving as the instrument of God's wrath on the wickedness and the sin of the Canaanites. And so because of this, Israel was called to destroy everything alive. Because the wrath of God destroys everything. Nothing survives it. And Israel was the instrument in this particular case. But Israel wasn't the only instrument of God's wrath. We also see throughout the Old Testament that God used nations like Assyria and Babylon as instruments of his wrath against Israel. Where he used these foreign powers to attack Israel and to take them out of the promised land. God has used Nations, He has raised up armies. He has used military to, to accomplish his purposes in the past. And certainly he does it today. But for the church, we are no longer instruments of God's wrath. God's people are never called to be instruments of his wrath. Because you and I both know very well that every drop of the wrath of God has been poured out. There is none left to be poured out. It was poured on Christ. He drank that cup to its end. And the wrath of God has been satisfied. And so we are not called to be the instruments of his wrath anymore. And so there is no such thing as a holy war from a biblical perspective. There is no such thing as, as, as the church engaging in, in crusades against other nations and against other religions. The church got that horribly and tragically wrong. And we would be very foolish to fall into that same error. But, all of that being said, the passage still applies to us, still matters. I mean, consider, after all, does the Lord not still fight for us as he did for Israel? Does he not assure victory for us as he did for them? Does he not save us today as he saved them? Surely, of course he does. So why then does Deuteronomy 20 matter for us, for the church? 
I think it begins, the easiest way to begin this is to consider our enemies. Just as this was directed towards enemies, as Israel looked out at armies that, was, that were bigger and, and stronger than them, we too have enemies that are terrifyingly powerful. Think of it. We have external enemies. We have culture. We have governments. We have worldviews that are not only contrary to what we believe, but are openly antagonistic to the church and to the gospel. There are governments around the world that have a primary focus of stopping the church and the advance of the kingdom of God in its tracks. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. This this fact, this reality shouldn't take us by surprise. It shouldn't catch us off guard. A world lost in sin will never welcome the Lord or his people, ever. But not only do we have external enemies, people that are out there, we also have internal enemies. We have sin and temptation. We have anxiety and worry. We have fears. We have troubles. We have weaknesses. I mean, we are limited and broken, and we know it. Often the most frightening enemy that we face is the one staring at us in the mirror every morning. The one that we, the enemy that we know better than anyone else. The enemy that is filled with darkness. Broken by weakness. Covered in anxiety and fears. And brokenness. But behind both the external and the internal enemies that we face, we need to understand very clearly that there is a spiritual enemy at work in both our external and our internal. There is this spiritual true enemy who is hiding and working behind the scenes. He is pulling strings and impacting culture to fight all the more against the advance of God's kingdom, whether around the world or in your own soul. Paul says very clearly in 2 Corinthians 10, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but these weapons have divine power to destroy spiritual strongholds. Again, in Ephesians 6, where Paul famously tells the church to put on the whole armor of God, right before that he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let me be very clear, church. You and I have a spiritual enemy who is at work, whether you realize it or not. And with these enemies standing against us on the daily battlefield of our lives, we need to hear the words of the Israelite priest. Hear, O church. Today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you, who will fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. And which of your enemies has Christ not defeated? Which of your enemies were not nailed to that cross? I mean, this is the beauty of the resurrection. It's not just that Christ came back from the dead and the story had a happy ending. It's that every one of our enemies, the resurrection is the ultimate victory over everything. 
that death itself had been defeated. I mean, think of it externally. This world and all of its authorities, all of the powers, all the governments, they are fading away. They are coming to their end and the anger and rage that they direct towards the church and towards the kingdom of God. It is the last bit of fight in a dying world. Think of it internally. I mean, your greatest internal enemy is your sin and this sin leads you to your death. And it has been dealt with fully and completely. What is the hymn that we that what is the hymn that we sing every so often say? Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Tim Keller said this week, he said, for every look that you give to your own sinfulness, take four looks at your savior. You may be tempted and tried. You may be you may even fall into sin as a Christian. You most certainly will in this life. But Christ has promised the victory. He has fought for you and your sin will never have the last word over you ever. And then we consider spiritual enemies, the enemies we cannot see, much less defeat. But Colossians 2 says that when Christ died on the cross, it says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross and the empty tomb. The spiritual war is won, not by us or by our strength or by our faithfulness or by our holiness, because certainly none of that is strong enough to win that battle. Christ, our King, our Savior, has gone before us and he has fought the battle for us and he has won the victory for you. The victory is yours. And as Moses told the Israelites standing on that shore of the Red Sea, you need only be silent. Trust in the victory that Christ has won. Believe him. Believer, are you living in light of the victory of Christ? Or do you live defeated? Just waiting for the next trip up, the next mistake, the next failure. Do you live free from the curse and the stain of sin? Or does it feel like your shame and your guilt just follows you around like a black cloud? Victory is won. It is defeated. It is done. The Lord has fought and he has won and he has done it for you. Live like it. But maybe you're here this morning and you've never known that victory. Sin just always finds a way to win, doesn't it? You try and you try to be a better person. You give every effort that you possibly can give to putting away the demons and the darkness that seem to haunt you. But it's a losing battle and you know it. You have no idea what victory looks like, much less tastes like or smells like because it's been so far from you that you have no idea what I'm talking about. 
You're always anxious. You're always afraid. You feel your weakness every day. And you are failing over and over and over again. Hear me then. If if that's you, then hear me. You're not alone in that. I have been there. But the greatest offer that I can give you this morning is for you to come to Jesus and place your faith and trust in him and he has given you the victory. And that you will stand in the light of his grace because the battle is won. It is done. The last words he cried on the cross. It is finished. The victory is won and it is offered to you and him. Will you take it? Now that we've covered four verses, let's cover the next 16. Now, if the Lord fights for us, and if victory is assured because the Lord fights for us, then we must live and fight the battle with grace. Let me, let me show you three ways that we, that we fight, that we give grace to three different groups here. First, there is grace for the conscripted. Grace for the conscripted. We read it in verses 5 through 9, how the the army is gathered in Israel. Because you see, Israel had no standing army. They didn't have a specialized military. They didn't have anybody that was just ready to fight at the given moment. The army of Israel were neighbors and relatives and friends. They were farmers and businessmen. They They were just regular Joes. Who when the time came and the need arose, they grabbed their swords and shields and they went to the battlefield. But if the Lord had promised the victory and is himself fighting for Israel, then the way that they enlist and the way that they conscript soldiers can be done differently than how other nations must do it. Here we see in these verses four exemptions for Israelite men. And it's very, very straightforward, very clearly. The officers, the leaders of the military come forward and they say, hey, anybody here just built a house, but you haven't had a chance to live in it. Anybody? All right, if that's you, go home because you might die in this battle and someone else is going to live in the house you just built. Next, he says, if anyone's planted a vineyard, but you haven't tasted the grapes from that vineyard, go home. Planting a vineyard was about a five year process from beginning to end. So if you haven't tasted the grapes from your vineyard, then what are you doing here? Go home, go eat the grapes, fight in the next one. Someone else might eat those grapes you planted. Then he says, if anyone's gotten engaged, just married a wife, but you haven't had children yet, you haven't started a family yet, you don't have offspring yet, go home. Be with your wife. Start a family. Because you might die, and someone else might take your wife and start a family without you. And the last one, he says, if you're afraid, go home. I mean, imagine what a modern military would look like if exemptions like these were just thrown out. Anybody not want to fight today? You're good. Go on home. We're good. We don't need you today. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense at all, especially when you consider that Israel was outmatched on the battlefield. They were fighting horses and chariots. You need as many men on the field as you got. Wouldn't make any sense. Unless the battle's already won. Unless it's already accomplished because the Lord said he's going to give it to you. I mean, we we read in the book of Judges uh, 
how Gideon was, was instructed in gathering his army. Gideon was terrified of the Midianite army. Absolutely terrified, shaking in his boots. And God says, you're going to be the man to lead the, lead the army against these people. And Gideon tests God. He says, you've got to prove this first. And he goes through all these tests. And finally, Gideon says, okay, let's do this. They send out the call. They gather the men. They get about 32,000 men ready to fight. And God says to Gideon, hey, tell the men that if anyone's afraid, they need to go home. And 22,000 men go home, leaving Gideon with 10,000. So Gideon's like, all right, 10,000. It's not as much as 32,000, but I can work with 10,000. God says, nope, that's still too many. We need to weed them down a little bit more. So he tells them, let's go down to the river and have, it, have all the men drink from the river. And so the group divides and they go down to the river and some men get down on their knees and they stick their face into the river and drink it like a dog. Other men get down like, like good soldiers do so they can keep their eyes up watching around for enemies. And they put their knee to the ground and they bring the water up to their face and they're keeping their eyes on the field. God says, hey, the men that acted like soldiers and brought the water up to their face, send them home. You need the men that have no idea what they're doing. And so Gideon quickly goes from 32,000 soldiers to 300. And 300 of the most ill-equipped soldiers that Israel ever had. And what happens? Gideon wins. The Lord wins the battle and drives the Midianites out. And no one ever, ever wields a sword. The Lord gives Israel the victory through Gideon by banging on pots and pans. Because the Lord wins the battle. And he can do it with whatever soldier he chooses. Now to understand why this matters for us, I think we need to understand the purpose of these four exemptions. Why were they given? And if we understand that Israel fought these wars to conquer and then protect the promised land, this was to encourage the blessings of the promised land. The promised land brought them homes. It brought them gardens. It brought them families. The promised land was a place of life. And if fighting in these wars and fighting in these battles prevented them from enjoying the blessings of the promised land, what's the point of fighting? Why, why spend all of your life on the battlefield trying to protect the good life if you never get to enjoy the good life you're fighting to protect? So it is with us. Christ said very clearly that he came to give life and to give life abundantly. And it certainly means for all eternity. But it also means life today. If then we have been given the abundant life that is won for us in the victory of Christ then let us be sure that we enjoy the abundant life Christ gives today. Ecclesiastes says it very clearly. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. And this is absolutely true. But if our entire lives are spent battling the enemies to the point that we cannot enjoy the life that's been given to us, then what are you fighting for? Imagine being given a fresh start, being given a brand new life, and then being so afraid that you're going to fall, so afraid that you're going to mess it up, so afraid that you're going to break something, that you decide to remove anything and everything good that could be enjoyed because you're afraid you might enjoy it too much. It's ridiculous. The church is not called to be a monastery. You are not called to be a monk living a life of asceticism or self-denial. Yes, 
There are times when we must be on guard. Yes, there are times when we must deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow Christ. Absolutely. But it will not be good for us if our entire life is a never-ending killjoy because we've missed the gospel. The battle is won. We can celebrate and live and be joyful and abundant in life because Christ has won. So, church, would you say that you are living a a joyful and abundant life in the grace of Christ? Or would you say that you are spending more of your time fighting than you are enjoying? Yes, we are called to fight. Yes, we are called to resist sin. Yes, we are called to resist temptation, to proclaim the gospel, and to push back the enemies of darkness. But we do this in the light and life of Christ, and there is enjoyment there. There is blessing It is not a burden to be in the service of the king. So there's grace for the conscripted. Second, quickly, there's grace for the conquered. In verses 10 through 15, the focus is not on the people of the Canaanites. They will be destroyed completely. But it is on the people that live outside the promised land. So Philistines, Moabites, those are good examples of those people. And so for those peoples, before Israel attacked their cities, they were to give them terms of peace. If the terms of peace were accepted, no one was killed, no battle was fought, that city would then become servants to Israel and life would be spared. If the terms of peace were rejected, war would take place. Israel was called to kill all the men who would have been their soldiers, to spare all the women and children and the livestock and take them as plunder for themselves. Again, unusual war tactics for the time. If you leave people alive, especially people you've attacked, they will eventually rise up and attack back. And so at the time, you you don't spare your enemies. You destroy them completely, fully, entirely. But not for Israel. Because the battle was won by the Lord, because of this, Israel was, was, they were called to give grace to the conquered. And so it is for us. See, for Christians, it's easy, is it not, to to view non-Christians as enemies the world outside these walls they are the ones fighting against us they disagree with us they oppose us they think and live differently than us and they will always stand in the way of our god and king and if this is our mindset then our mindset when we engage the world with the gospel it will always be us versus them and we are not called to that mindset Because this will only lead to fighting of some kind. Christian, you are not called to fight flesh and blood. You are not called to make war with non-believers. You are not called to make war with other religions. You are called to offer anyone and everyone terms of peace found in Christ. There is peace here. Let me give you an example. Our nation is built on religious liberty. On freedom of religion. And it is a good thing. But especially the church, we get in this mindset, because it's been this way for so long, that religious liberty only applies to the Christian. The Muslims, you can't practice the way you want to practice. And Buddhists, you can't practice the way you want to practice, because this is America and we have freedom of religion. But it only applies to the church. That's wrong. The beauty of the Constitution is that we can worship in freedom in this church and gather together. But you know what? Down the street, if they chose... A Muslim congregation could gather and do the same. And that's a good thing. 
And it's not a good thing because I think that they're right in how they worship and how they and what they believe. It's right because they can worship there freely and we can engage with them freely. It means you and I can sit down with a non-believer, with a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Hindu, an atheist, an agnostic, whatever they want to be. And we can sit down and have a peaceful conversation with them and engage them with the gospel without it turning hostile. And that's a good thing. That's a blessing. So we should work to take religious liberty seriously. And we should work to protect the religious liberty of other religions. Because if they take it away from them, it won't be long before it's taken away from us. We are called to offer terms of peace. And in offering terms of peace in the gospel of Christ, we give grace to the conquered. Third and finally, there is grace for creation. Grace for the creation. Chapter 20 ends in verses 19 and 20 with this strange command not to cut down trees to build siege works when they attack a city. And it makes sense practically because we, we learned that the trees that God is talking about here are fruit trees. I mean, practically, cedar and oak would make better siege work trees than apple and fig trees. It's just a better wood, a stronger wood. It's not as gnarly and, and twisted. And so Israel was called not to do this. But more than that, the, I mean, from, from a life perspective, God was telling Israel, when you attack a city, you cannot use scorched earth warfare. You need to allow that when this war ends, which it will, that there is a possibility for life to be lived here in this land that you just conquered. If you burn everything down and you cut down every tree and you remove any and all sources of food, life will not be able to be lived here again. So God says, we don't need to do that. We need to care for creation, even in warfare. And the command really hasn't changed that much for us because we actually have a deeper and a better understanding of our role with creation because of Christ. Christ has promised to return. And when he comes, when he returns, he has promised to remake and recreate this world. A world that is, is broken right now. He will remake and restore it to its original glory and its perfection. And we and our newly resurrected, perfected bodies will live and enjoy this new earth with him forever. It's going to be great. It would be easy then for us, knowing that that day's coming, knowing that this creation will be remade, for us to just think, who cares? Who cares about this world? God's going to remake it. So why do we need to be good stewards of it? Why take so much care today? You see, just like you and I are anxiously awaiting the return of our king. So is his creation. Paul says in Romans that creation is groaning like a woman in the pangs of childbirth. Creation is groaning, longing for its creator to come back and fix it. This world that we live in feels every bit of the brokenness of sin, just like you and I do. But the creation still holds a purpose today. Creation reveals and speaks of its creator, glorifying its creator. And so to destroy and cast away this revelation of God is to destroy how God speaks people of all times and places. 
So let us then live in grace and give the grace of Christ to creation. Caring and stewarding and protecting this world. Living in the light of the fact that when God comes, he will remake this world that he called good. And it will be good once again. The Lord fights the battle. And because the Lord fights the battle, victory is assured. And if victory is assured, then we can give grace to the conscripted, we can give grace to the conquered, and we can give grace to the creation. God's people are different. We are certainly called to be different. We are different because God has made us different, He has saved us, and He has called us to live differently than the rest of the world because of what Christ has done. And for Israel, this this included their war strategies and their tactics on the battlefield. They couldn't wage war like the nations around them waged war. But they didn't have to because the Lord promised the victory. Christian, the Lord has fought for you. He has defeated your enemies. He has conquered your foes and he has broken your chains. Now, let us then live in light of the grace that you and I have been given and give that grace to our fellow brothers and sisters to the outsiders that are among us, to the creation in which we live. And we know that our conquering king will return. And when he does, it will be with the sword in his fist. And he will win once and for all the final battle. And we, his people, will celebrate in that victory forever. Pray with me. Christ, our King, you you have won. You have won the battle. You have given your people victory. We believe it and we live in it. We celebrate the victory over our sin and over our death. Thank you. God, teach us what it means to live in the victory of Christ. Remove any sense of, of guilt from us. Remove our sins, remove our temptations, drive back our enemies. Go before us and fight for us. Forgive us for when we are fearful, when we are afraid, when we doubt that you can do what you say you have done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we as we do here at Bear Creek, we... Come together and we take communion as a way to respond to God's word. Uh, Ron is at the back. If you need communion, to just raise your hand. He'll bring it to you. Uh, but as he does, I, I want to give just a, a quick word of instruction to this. For starters, this is a wafer and some grape juice. It does not save. It is not salvific. It does not purchase forgiveness of sins. It does not pardon you. This is a picture. And if you haven't had the real thing, then the picture doesn't do much for you. And so if you're here this morning and you don't quite know what that victory is that I've been talking about this morning. Let me encourage you to not take the picture, but take the real thing. Take Christ. Come to him, place faith in him and live in the victory that he has purchased for you. Your sins will crush you, they will defeat you, and one day you will die. But Christ died in your place for your sins.
to give you victory over them. All you need to do is believe, and it will be yours. If you'd like to talk more about that, I would love to to talk with you about it after service. Just come find me and let me know. Christian, if you are here and you believe, have placed faith in Christ for salvation, then rejoice, for the victory is won. It is yours. And as we come to the table, we come remembering the battle that our victory was purchased. We remember the cross on which our Savior and King died. Because you see, when we look to the bread and we look to the cross of Christ, we are reminded of what it took to win the battle. It took the death of God's Son. And so we remember our sins and we remember the battle that was fought for us. The body of Christ broken for you. After Christ died, he was buried. They rolled a giant stone in front of the grave so that no one could get in or out. And on the third day, Christ, the dead man, the crucified one, came back to life, rose again and walked out of the grave. And he ascended into heaven, as we, as we say every week in, in our Apostles' Creed, he ascended into heaven, and currently he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. He has promised, he promised his disciples when he took this table with them, he said, I won't taste this cup again until I taste it new with you in the kingdom. When Christ returns and remakes this world, he will once more take this cup and drink it with each and every one of us. And until that day comes, we pray and we wait anxiously. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, to the King. Let us end our our service this morning by singing one final hymn, hymn 513. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. We'll sing the first and last verse. In your bulletin is the Great Commission. Uh, We say this commission together because these are the final marching orders given by Christ our King to us. And he told his disciples these words that we are to go from here and to go and make disciples of every nation, teaching and baptizing 
instructing all that, that Christ has commanded. And so I invite you to say this, this final command of Christ aloud with me this morning. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go in grace.